So last week we addressed um, the first 16 verses, really the first six verses we focused on of chapter 4. And this week we are going to uh, read the same 16 verses, but look at the the second half, focus on the second half of this section, verses uh, 7 to 16. And we addressed and focused on last week the fact that we are at a turning point in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, What I called uh, the Pauline pivot. There's a clear turn here from the first three chapters to the last three chapters. What God has done to save us, His grace dominated the first three chapters. And the response, therefore, we walk in newness of life, dominates uh, the last three chapters. So guilt, grace, and gratitude. This pattern that we find in our Heidelberg Catechism is Paul's pattern of teaching consistently in the New Testament. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism was modeled on the book of Romans that follows this same pattern, and we see it here in Ephesians. And just because I'm going to be repeating uh, these technical terms, the grammatical terms of indicative and imperative are a shorthand for this in the study of the Apostle. Paul speaks in the indicative voice, who we are. And then he commands us, therefore, walk, I urge you. In newness of life. Now, this pivot from indicative to imperative isn't a, a hermetical seal. Um, Paul can never stop preaching Christ. <laughs> he keeps coming back to Christ, to the death and resurrection of Christ, and he'll do that in our text today. Uh, the gospel itself, brothers and sisters, one of the lessons we learn here from the apostle is not only the motivation, but it is the power of sanctification. We get the energy to live the new life, the joy that we need to do so out of the good news. If you want someone to obey God's law, to love their neighbor as they love themselves, to love God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't preach the law. That will discourage them. Preach the gospel. Yes, preach the law. But it always has to come back to the gospel. That's the power, the energy of the new life. The law comes back in and shows us how to live. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. So my outline today uh, will be threefold. And and just very briefly, there's a lot in these verses. Um, I preached through Ephesians 10 years ago. It's on the website. Um, I took three sermons to cover these uh, 10 verses uh, 10 years ago. I'm going to do it in one, uh, Lord willing, today. But the first point is this opening... uh, Transition, but grace was given to each one of us, which flows in verse 7. The second point of my outline is grace is given through, primarily through the teaching offices of the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. For three purposes, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And you will see In a moment, why I outlined that in the bulletin the way I did in our outline. Three different purposes. And third and finally, so that by speaking the truth in love, we may grow into our head, namely Christ. Well, this is God's holy word for us today. I'll read the whole section that we'll be focusing on verse 7 and following. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope 
that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who ascended is the one who also, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Last week, uh, because we had taken some time off over the summer, we did a brief uh, recap of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Um, this is the foundation, the grounding of our new life in Christ. And so we, we had to look back and make sure we remembered all that we heard in the springtime. And so I think it's kind of fitting as we continue forward now into the second half that we do a brief uh, precap uh, of the next three chapters. In other words, we're standing in the middle, we're looking back and we're looking forward. I think it's useful to see where we're going. So I don't know if you want to have your Bibles open, but we just see Paul's uh, thought here. Therefore, I who am a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he sets forward here humility and gentleness as necessary virtues to have, to bear with one another in love. Unity is hard. It's one of the points we made last week. It's difficult, but it is grounded in the unity of the body that the Spirit creates. And that's what we see this week when the apostle says, but grace is given. It's hard, but God gives us what we need. Diverse gifts for each one. There's unity and diversity. And that's the key theme here in this gifting section. Grace is given in the teaching offices of the church. Ephesians is the epistle of the church, brothers and sisters. And so it is so important to see what he's teaching us here. Verse 16, that we might build itself up that the church is a corporate entity, might build itself up in love, grow into unity into one another. No longer. So we turn our backs. This unity makes us leave the way of the world. No longer walking as Gentiles. And notice that how these teaching offices is in the background here, right? What's the, what's the problem with Gentile living? Their minds are darkened. They have to put off their old self and put on the new self, a new creation. New life. That Paul holds forward in these chapters is characterized by forgiveness. Modeled on Christ's forgiveness of you. The gospel, Christ, continue to be the center as we move into the practical matters of the Christian life. And we're called to be imitators of God. In what regard? He says, beloved, beloved ones, love. As Christ loved us. 
and gave himself up. Turn from sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry. Yes, God's wrath is on those things. He calls us to holiness. He says, one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. You see that, that command to walk in a new way from a new reality. The command flows from the new reality. The imperative follows the indicative. The behavior flows from the identity. Look carefully how you walk. Be wise. And then we have this whole section on relationships. Submit to one another in the church. That's the unity in the church. Submit to one another in the church. But then this pattern goes into our homes and our workplaces. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Again, back to Christ in the gospel. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, parents, do not provoke your children. It's very easy for fathers to do. Dad, bond servants, masters. You see, this grace in Christ infuses all aspects of our life. Put on, in this final chapter, the full armor of God. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Notice how this armor, again, circulates around really powerfully the teaching ministry. We are... uh, um, We have, uh, we'll see this a little bit later, gifts that are given in our text this week. Prophets and teachers guide us in the truth, in the gospel, in the faith, in the scriptures, in the word. And Paul closes with peace, love, and grace. Just as he opened the epistle with grace and peace. And back on March 19th, I think I kicked off this series uh, with a sermon that said, Do not take grace and peace for granted. What a gift. They are of the new creation. Don't take these things for granted. So that's where Paul's going. And you see, it's all grounded on what we talked about last week. This this tremendous unity we are given in Christ. And he says here in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us. After grounding the new life in the triunity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... A new life that is eager. He says, be eager to maintain this unity in the church. Paul turns to the giving of grace because we need it. The Christian life is difficult. Do not take it for granted that you will go in grace. You need help. You need the church. You need one another. You need the spirit. You need God's truth. As an an example of the Christian life, because Paul will make this analogy later... I'll, I'll hop ahead a little bit. Let's, let's just take, I know this is a directly relevant for a number of people here. Let's take marriage as an example, right? Marriage in which two are literally made one flesh. Marriage in which uh, each party gets to choose the other. Like you get to voluntarily enter into this thing, usually in our world today. Marriage is famously difficult. It is statistically, objectively difficult. We don't choose our church family. I love when C.S. Lewis talks about this in screw tape letters. It's like, get your new believer to look to his left and right in the pew. It's your greatest ally. It is God's calling which calls us to a local church. We saw the fruit of that this morning. He is the author of this unity, this creator of this body. He creates this unity, but he gives us the gifts we need to pursue it and to fulfill it and to maintain it. It's work, brothers and sisters. Now, there are a few interesting details that I want to draw out from verse 7, and, and they, they point to a, a specific emphasis that Paul is making here. First, it starts with a but. But, grace was given to each one of us. It's sort of an odd but. Why the but? What's the contrast? 
He's talking about unity, one God, one Father who's overall. But grace was wide the butt. Well, I think we'll see that Paul is trying to draw a contrast here because he's just been emphasizing unity and then he's going to turn to the diverse giving of gifts. So it's the unity and the diversity and how they cohere that is marked by the but. Now the second emphasis in this sentence is each one of us. It's an odd Greek construction. Each one of us. It's redundant. And in fact, the very first word in the sentence is one each of us. Each one individually. So he's just been talking about one church, one faith, one body. And then he goes to one. It's a contrast. That's why there's a but. And third and finally, there is a word here called measure. The measure of Christ. Which is a theme throughout this section. It appears at the beginning, the end, right in the middle. I'll try to flag it each time. There is a measure. The word is, is metron. If you think of like a metronome. You musicians out there. A metronome helps you keep time. It measures out time. You see, the ironic contrast that Paul is drawing here is that to maintain one singular unity in the church, God has to give diverse individual gifts to different people. We are united by being different and serving in different roles. We have to embrace this diversity to have true unity. The word grace here means gift. And the word given and gift are are used here emphatically. We need gifts to do this work. Paul goes on to quote Psalm 68 to show that the Old Testament foretold Christ's gift giving to the church. Now, some people get a little hung up on the details of this quotation. He he sort of uh, massages the Old Testament text if you did a very close comparison. But what's important here is that that Paul is, when he cites this one verse, is he's really quoting the whole idea of Psalm 68. This great triumphant victory march. And Psalm 68 is an epic poem describing the Lord's salvation in terms of a great victory won over Israel's foes. And verse 18 is speaking of the triumphal victory march as the triumphant king is ascending back to Jerusalem and his throne. And it's God himself ascending in glory. And what Paul is saying here is, Psalm 68 is about Jesus. He's teaching us how to read the Old Testament, how to read the Bible. The salvation of Yahweh, the Lord, is really a shadow and anticipation of the coming salvation of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, the ascension of Yahweh, which is so graphically portrayed in Psalm 68, this idea that Yahweh is going up, creates sort of a riddle in the history of redemption. If, if Yahweh goes up in victory, I guess he had to first descend. When did Yahweh come down? Paul believes and teaches us that Christ revealed the fullness of Psalm 68. The lower regions of the earth, I believe, is just a reference to the grave. He's talking about the cross. In other words, the gifts given to the church... The grace we receive is from the one who through his humiliation and suffering of death has attained, as Philippians tells us, a name above every name and all power and all authority. The fullness of Christ is a result of him humbling himself in love for us at the cross. The one who humbled himself and ascended to glory is empowered in glory to give gifts, to enable us To likewise humble ourselves. He modeled our humility. But he's not just a teacher. He earned it. He bought it. With his blood and his death. Breaking. 
the grip and chains that Satan had bound us in. So that's, that's Paul's sort of opening movement here. You need grace to do this thing. You can't do it alone. And the second point is how this grace is given. This grace is given through the teaching offices of the church. And there are these three purpose clauses. Paul proceeds to specify the gifts. So he says, therefore it says, and then he, he takes this little detour into ascension, descension, a little complicated. It's Paul's kind of classic little rabbit trail. And then he comes back to the main theme. And in verse 11, he gave gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The first thing you need to mark and understand is that Paul's starting point when talking about the grace the gifts that are given to us by the ascended Christ is that he begins with the church, the institutional church, which calls and ordains and sends teachers and pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. These are offices in the apostolic church. And the first three of these are temporary foundational offices given by Christ for the foundation laying generation of the church. Now that's a sermon in itself. That's why I preached three ten years ago. I don't have time to do the full defense of this, but I'm happy to discuss if you want to follow up after the service. Paul, uh, for instance, is an apostle. He writes this epistle as an apostle. His authority is apostolic, received directly from Christ. That's a part of the definition of an apostle. You've been given a mission, a commission, to preach the message Jesus gives you. And he calls himself the last or the least of the apostles. In chapter 2 of this book, he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You see, they're foundation lane offices. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We never see the New Testament talk about second generation apostles. This is not passed on or extended. The prophets prophesying, I believe, it's not referring here to future telling prophets, which prophets in the Old Testament did do, but is speaking of forth telling, scripture expounding prophets. And they're referred to, as I said, in Ephesians 2.20. And then finally, evangelists, the third office mentioned here. Two men in the New Testament, best I can tell, are Philippi, Philip and Timothy, are called evangelists. And Paul in his letter to Timothy, his second letter, uh, goes into the most clear detail on this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. And then he closes this passage writing to his younger partner in ministry, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So all of that is what Paul says is the work of the evangelists. And again, as the church was spreading, the apostles called and sent men to take that gospel uh, and be evangelists. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some men who have a particular gift of evangelizing today. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But these are referring to specific offices. The last two offices, pastor or teacher, are continuing offices. 
We see them being passed on in the New Testament to subsequent generations of the church. God continues from the time of Jesus and Paul until today to give his church the special offices of pastor or shepherd, is the same word here, and teacher. Jesus told Peter at the close of John's gospel, the risen Christ, what did he say? Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. Well, the feeding is the teaching ministry of the shepherd. Peter tells fellow elders in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. First Peter, he says again, referring to Jesus as a shepherd, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were strained like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We throw around this term pastor a lot. We don't think about it in its original meaning, like literally just a shepherd boy with a stick out caring for the sheep. But shepherding assumes that we're the sheep. (laughs) That's why the unity is so hard. You were straying like sheep. We stray. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We must eagerly maintain as he'll say in our passage later today, so that we may no longer be children. And the word there, it's good that we have this illustration in our midst, is the word for a toddler. We all know what toddlers do. They toddle about. I see moms running after them, right? (laughs) That we may no longer be toddlers, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, shifting his analogy there, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We abandon our our toddler existence and grow up into Christ. Now, this is not to minimize that elsewhere the apostle speaks of the giving of spiritual gifts to individuals. 1 Peter 4.10, as each member of the church has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Indeed, he's talking here about the gifts that each one of us receive, right? But they come through the teaching office of the church. We are graced through the church of Jesus Christ. As good Americans, we think of the Spirit's work as interior and subjective and individualistic. But it is portrayed here for us in the pages of Ephesians as corporate. We grow up together into our head. Paul is emphasizing these gifts we've received in his church, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and for us continuing today, pastors and teaching. Now, when you glance forward, and this is one of the reasons we we took this pre-cap of the coming uh, chapters of this book, notice what chapter 4 and 5 and 6 tell us. What's important to the life of the believer? That we have unity of faith and knowledge of the Son. We must be taught. That we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by deceit. That we speak the truth in love. We have to know the truth. That we are no longer darkened in our understanding. Not ignorant. He says in 421, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. You see how important in this age which uh, says that everyone has their own truth, right? Everyone has their own experience. That's all that matters. That's not what Paul believes. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The old man 
as deceitful desires. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We have to put away falsehood. We have to speak the truth, each one of us, with our neighbor. Where do we learn it? From what we're taught, what we heard. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There's a lot of those today. Discern what is pleasing. Fathers, discipline and instruct in the Lord. All of these activities that will flow through the remaining chapters are empowered through our life together in the church. The ministry of the word. The armor has a belt of truth, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The whole epistle bears witness to the centrality of the word-focused ministry of the church. One application here, brothers and sisters, I believe, is that we would all revolutionize the holiness of our own lives, of the Christian church and of our world, if we dedicated our lives to the study of the truth of God's word. We don't think of the most powerful thing that we could do to really dig in. And to embrace this word ministry of the local church. To prepare for the preaching of the word. To receive the preaching of the word. To reflect on it. To read God's word and study it at home. To learn and grow uh, through discipleship and conversation with pastors and elders. All these opportunities are open and provided for you through the grace of Christ. But Paul doesn't depend merely on the whole thrust of the epistle to explain the importance of these gifts. He gives us three purpose clauses here, which these offices serve. And we need to focus on this because I want to tweak uh, the translation of the ESV. I'm sure, um, I'm not sure of anything really. Um, You may have heard it in, in my tone of voice. There are three purpose clauses here in the grammar. And I'm sorry, I'm going to geek out just a little bit. To equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. These three specific purposes all take as their subject the officers that Paul says are given to the church. Focusing on our church today, it is pastors and teachers who equip the saints. It is pastors and teachers who do the work of ministry. It is pastors and teachers who build up the body of Christ. Now, the reason I'm considering this is because there is a comma missing after saints and before the, for the work of ministry. So what we have instead is the second parallel phrase subordinated to the first parallel phrase, which entirely changes the meaning of this text. In other words, our ESV reads, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And what that translation does, and it's a change from what the church has had in earlier centuries, is emphasize that the saints, all of you all, are doing the most important work of ministry. And pastors and teachers equip you for doing the work of ministry. Paul is saying, I submit to you, something very different. His focus here throughout are on the officers of the church who do uh, the work of ministry. These are three parallel purpose clauses which are not subordinate to one another, but are three diverse things. Now, why is this significant? It's, it's amazing how much of a difference a comma can make. The ESV translation suggests that the purpose of all the offices, and for us today, is to equip you saints for the work of ministry. And this has inspired something that's often referred to as every member ministry. Right? The church is really comprised of, if we think of an organic structure, a bunch of cells who all do ministry. There is a sense in which that is true. That's not what Paul's teaching here. This is said 
every member of ministry is said to be in keeping with the Reformation, right? The priesthood of all believers. Well, we're all, we all do ministry. We all love one another. But the Reformation, while, while denying that clergy had a unique holiness, there's no higher status for, for priests or bishops in the church, emphasized that everyone needs to understand and know and profess their faith. They denied that there was this unique holiness of clergy. They did not undermine the teaching ministry of the church. It was often referred to as the keys of the kingdom of God. You know, that logo of the Holy Roman See has the keys, and they're supposed to be the keys of Peter, which Jesus gave to Peter, and he's given to every pope since then. But we have in our catechism a question and answer on what are the keys of the kingdom of God. We didn't abandon the keys, we just understand them differently. Our catechism says the keys of the kingdom of God are the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. The keys of the kingdom of God are the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, and the application of that to lives of individuals. So Paul is telling us that pastors and teachers equip the saints. Pastors and teachers do this word-based ministry, and pastors and teachers build up the body of Christ. Yes, we will speak. And indeed, verse 15 is talking about how then we are equipped by grace through these teaching offices to live a corporate life together. What does he say? He talks uh, there about speaking the truth in love, growing up in every way into him who is the head. That's something we all engage in. The New Testament speaks elsewhere of this view. This is why these offices are treated with such care. This is why men are set apart through fasting and prayer. This is why there is a laying on of hands. This is why we have chapters in Paul's letter to Timothy about the qualifications for men who would serve as elders in the church. The New Testament guards these offices very carefully because they are given a specific task and function. And indeed, the teaching of the grace of Christ channels through them to God's people. So what's an application from this second point of our sermon? Brothers and sisters, read the word, the apostolic foundation, the prophetic evangelistic foundation laid for us in scripture. What a blessing it is to us. Love it. Read it. Second, recognize, love and cherish the ministry of the church. Pray for pastors. Pray for elders. Small churches like ours, the church plants we pray for, uh, Birmingham, they need elders desperately to function as churches. Pray for them that God might raise up those men. The fourth commandment in our catechism says that the gospel ministry and the schools for it might be maintained. Pray for young men to be called to attend seminary, to be trained and equipped to preach and teach the word. Pray for seminaries. You ever pray for seminary professors? A lot of trouble comes out of bad seminaries. Pray that the Lord would rebuke rebuke error and prevent, promote truth and attend personally and invest in the ministry of the word. Brothers and sisters, this is a useful time to remind us all that we have two services on the Lord's Day. We have a catechism service where the word is preached, more in a teaching format, but it's not a Bible study. It's the preaching of the word as it's summarized in our catechism and confessions. That's at 9.30 every Sunday. Now, I know it's hard to get to on Sunday mornings for many of us. I know for big families, I know for others, there are a lot of reasons why not everyone is there. But the word is there for you to feed upon to nourish you. And I want to encourage you to consider that. If you can't make it, you can listen to it online. Reflect on the sermon.
And finally, support the church and the mission of the church. All of these folks who have come into formal church membership today have made a a vow, more or less, to pray for, support the ministry of our local church and the preaching of the gospel that takes place here. And that brings us, third and finally, to how this grace gets to us and the impact it has. So that by speaking the truth in love, we may grow into our head, namely Christ. This is the fruit of the gifts of the gospel ministry of the church. We all learn to speak the truth in love, to grow into Christ through the grace Christ has sent in his prophets and teachers. Paul turns here to his favorite metaphor for the church, the body of Christ. He already introduced it back in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the metaphor of the body explains why each one of us must get our own particular measure. There's that word again of Christ's grace. We get the grace we need to fulfill our particular calling. And the truth of love connects us to our head, Christ, from whom all these graces flow. The whole body is joined together and each part works properly doing its proper task. This word proper is again that word measure. The proper amount of what it needs. It's the foundation for diversity and unity. When each part works properly, the whole body grows up. You can't have growth in the Christian life alone. That's why we celebrate membership here and what we just did this morning. We are called to a corporate love. No, no individual has a love that burns so bright that it overshadows that of the church to which they belong. It's a love for a savior and a love for one another. Back in verse 2, Paul called us to bear with one another in love. We bear with. That means people that annoy us. We love them. Because when we were enemies, Christ loved us. There's an organic and a construction metaphor of building a household. Unity and diversity is hard. But as Paul was so later speaking to husbands, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. No one cuts off their own finger, their own leg. We love our own bodies. And we need to recognize that the church is our body. If you're one body, how can you tear one another apart? This should be, Calvin writes, this should be the end of selfishness in our churches. Calvin's quote in his commentary, John Calvin, 16th century reformer. That man is mistaken who desires his own separate growth. For what would it profit a leg or an arm if it grew to an enormous size or for the mouth to be stretched wider? It would merely be afflicted with a harmful tumor. So if we wish to be considered in Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for others. This is accomplished by love. And where love does not reign, there is no edification of the church, but a mere scattering. That line, let us all be whatever we are for others. What a powerful line. This is the love that flows from knowing Christ as your Savior. Do you know Christ in this way? Do you know His love for you? We've driven an unhelpful wedge between head and heart in our modern world. 
But notice what Jesus prays in John 17 when he's praying for the church. And he's praying for our unity. And by the way, he's praying this prayer right now as well. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word that they heard. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they're not of this world. Just as I'm not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And for their sake I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only. These apostles here. But also for those who will believe in me. Through their word. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity we have in Christ, the same unity that the Son has for the Father, is how the world knows that Jesus was sent to save sinners. This is the love that comes from knowing Christ in God's word. We all need this grace, this knowledge. We need this word to know the truth, to be preserved from error, And to grow up together in love. Let's pray. Merciful God and gracious Heavenly Father. We cast ourselves down before your throne. For your love and holiness so far excels. The dingy efforts we make. We need your grace. Help us to see through this beautiful word today. Our weakness. Our want. Our lack. Help us. Conjure in us a hunger and a thirst for your righteousness and holiness. Lord, help us come to this supper starving for what you offer us in our head, Jesus Christ. And help us go from this place a little bit more loving, a little bit more dedicated to the truth and speaking the truth in love. And more eager, dear Lord, zealous, anxious. To maintain the unity of your church through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.